My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 100. Woohoo! I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 1 Samuel 9 through 10, Proverbs 6, 23 to 35. 1 Samuel 9. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zerar, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost, and Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gifts to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, Come, let's go. So they set out of the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked them, Is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now, he has just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, Those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. They went up to the town and they were entering it. There was Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a young man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me. And in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel, and is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? 
Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about thirty in number. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, Here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion from the time I said, I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together, and they were going down to the edge of the town. Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flash of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, What shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servants, Where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said, But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, He assured us that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? 
And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by a valiant man whose heart God had touched. But some scoundrel said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. Proverbs 6 verse 23. For this command is a lamp, this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way of life. Keep you from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on you your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he is starving. Yet, if he is caught, he must pay sevenfold. Though it costs him all the wealth of his house, but a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, however great it is. We are learning so much about how to trust God in the story so far. Let's review this unified story we've been reading. So it started with a good God who creates a good creation. He is for it. As Marty Solomon says, God is inviting us to trust that God is for us and not living in doubt of who he is or fear that he is not enough. The first book of the Bible of the Torah or Pentateuch, Genesis, is about created order and then tragic dislocation because of our lack of trust. But if there was one central theme based on the focus of Genesis as a whole, Marty Solomon describes it as forgiveness. And then he describes how Exodus is the story that moves to describe two kingdoms. Marty Solomon describes it as a rescue story where God rescues his representative image and name-bearing partner, which is represented by Moses instead of Adam and Eve, and recruits him and others into the rescue mission itself, all the while maintaining his central and sovereign place in the story. He calls the nation of Israel to become a kingdom of priests and describes what that looks like in Leviticus. Then the people of Israel are tried or tested in the book of Numbers and called to remain and remember where they came from in the book of Deuteronomy. God keeps calling them back and delivering them, telling them to remember, 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 and never forget whose they belong to and what God's done in the story so far. For that is where drift begins to happen, is when we forget. Mistrust happens at the crossroad of doubt and fear. But if the signposts of who God is and the story we are in are at the forefront of our minds, hearts, and soul, we remember and can have strength to abide and obey. 
Then in Joshua, the focus is delivering the promise God made to Abraham back in Genesis, that his descendants, God's representative partners in the world, would be a blessing to all the world through God's blessing of inheritance. We learn that the land, which is part of the inheritance, is in the center of the Near Eastern ancient world. Because, as Marty Solomon says, God is not putting his people in the corner, but in the center of influence. So there's conquest over the adversary for this place. The land is called the crossroads of the earth, of civilization, to be the model poised to bless, like the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. Next, Marty Solomon describes judges not as a cycle of sin, but a redemption cycle, because he proposes we focus on God's patience and faithfulness, his goodness, instead of mankind's proclivity to drift. Keep the main thing the main thing. God, keep our eyes focused on him and what he is doing for, despite, through, and from his representative partners in the world. When we focus on the greatness or the tragedy of the human characters, I think we see the story maybe sideways or a little bit blurry. Then we look at Ruth, which tells a story of a family and individuals in the same place and time as Judges, which was such a mess. There are people who are trying to walk faithfully and follow God, not cutting corners, and from their line, this kingdom will emerge. While God is the center of the story, the human characters are relatable because they are dysfunctional and struggle. But there are countless lessons on how to lean or how to lean back into trusting a good, good God and Father. As I say that, I'm remembering something I heard yesterday in an interview with N.T. Wright. He describes the first line of the Lord's Prayer, which can be found in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, which reads, Our Father who art in heaven, as the quintessential encapsulation of our relationship to God, as the personal and intimate familial Father, and at the same time, the glorious God of it all, such majesty. As Marty Solomon says, God has endless or bottomless patience for those who are wholeheartedly trying to figure it out and follow him. Yet if we remember, there's this gruesome story at the end of Judges where countless sins have occurred to the point where Marty Solomon describes the people of Israel as moving from trying to figure it out and follow God and the redemptive cycles we've been reading into a devolved state, which he describes as the anti-story. This is different. This member, if you remember, the Levite priest wanted to stay with the tribe of Benjamin with his concubine instead of the local, seemingly more hospitable Gentiles. And a tragic story that echoes Sodom and Gomorrah occurs, but it feels even more depraved because there aren't two guardian angels to protect the Levite or the woman in the story. So instead, she is sacrificed in a terrible way. There is momentum and shift in this part of the story. The people of God are mirroring Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's not like there's the people of God and Sodom and Gomorrah. The people of God are mirroring Sodom and Gomorrah. They are losing the plot. They are no longer a kingdom of priests. They are now moving against God. And this is why Marty Solomon describes them as the anti-story at this point. The people are oppressing and not blessing. This rolls into 1 Samuel, and it started with Eli and his sons that do not act like priests. They were sleeping with women at the gate. There's this major mixing of religions, as we've read, and it's twice it said that everyone is just basically doing what they, own, what they want from their own sense of heart and what's right. 
The priest's sons are also stealing portions of meat from God and not practicing God's ways. Biblical scholars debate whether God wanted Israel to have a king. Deuteronomy 17 seems to indicate that Israel wanted to be like the other nations, and then here in Samuel, they state they want to be like other nations with a king to lead them. So some see the problem as being the reason they wanted a king, uh, and then others see it as being larger in the sense that God has been playing the role as king, delivering and guiding them. So the Israelites no longer want to be different as God called them to be a kingdom of priests. So Marty Solomon says the problem isn't that they want a king. It's that they no longer want to live in God's unique way to be a kingdom of priests, putting God on display, but being like other nations with a human king to lead them. So God picks Saul as the king, who Marty says God picks sends a very clear message to Israel. He he is described as looking the part. So Saul looks the part. He's a head above everybody else and like seemingly attractive, this king-like figure. But Marty points out that it's interesting that Saul was a donkey herder that lost his herd. That's how he's introduced in the story. And Marty sees this as a metaphor for two reasons. First, they should have a shepherd as a king. And second, the people of Israel were acting like donkeys. Marty also points out that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, which is so shocking when you think of the timeline and close proximity of the tragedy by the tribes of Benjamin. They're the ones that incited the civil war, and their specific crimes were just so egregious at the end of Judges. So Saul is a donkey herder from the most despised tribe in their history, and this is who God picked. Marty emphasizes how the messages of this selection would not be missed on the audience. This will be in sharp contrast to the second king, King David, who will not look the part. He will be the youngest of all the brothers. He will be a shepherd, and he will be from the tribe of Judah. I can't wait to get into this story. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.